Hey, good morning, crowd family. Happy, happy Sunday. Uh, so blessed you can join us today. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13 is today's text. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13 is today's text. We're now in part 19 of our series, Undivided. Now, before we dive into the text, as always, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, which was all of chapter 9. And you might remember that Paul was free to receive financial support from the Corinthian church, but he set aside that right in order to achieve a higher goal. And in the text, Paul begins by defending his rights for financial support, and that his right for financial support is stated in the Mosaic Law. And he quotes the Mosaic Law, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And Paul's point is that uh, God didn't give this law for the sake of the oxen. God gave this law to set up a principle that is that it's proper for the person who works to be paid. Now let's look at verse 12. Verse 12a, Paul writes, For if, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And so in his apostle and as the founding pastor of the church in Corinth, Paul had even more of a claim on their support than others did. But then Paul does something. He does something that, that no one expects him to do. After defending his rights uh, to receive financial support from the church, he then surrenders his rights uh, for financial support. Look at verse 12b, the second part of verse 12. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And you see, paid or not paid, it didn't matter to Paul. What mattered to Paul was the work of the gospel. And Paul, in fact, we know that Paul supported himself. He was a tent maker. And what mattered to Paul was that the gospel not be hindered in any way. Look at verse 15 with me now. Let's jump to that. Paul writes, But I have not used any of these rights. Did you get that? And I, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die. This is what he says. I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Again, Paul had the right, right? We know this. Paul had the right to be supported, but he didn't use that right. What he did, he surrendered his rights. Now, now his boasting here, his boasting here wasn't that he preached the gospel. Rather, his boasting was that he was able to do it without asking for support. Uh, Paul was compelled, love this about him, he was compelled to preach the gospel. And woe to me, he says, right, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He had to do it. It was burning up within his soul. He, he was compelled to fulfill that call. He didn't stop sharing the gospel. His heart was to win souls to Christ. And in verses 19 through 22, he, re, he reveals exactly how to do that. He says, to a Jew, I become a Jew. To a Gentile, I become a Gentile. To the weak, I become weak in terms of weak, a weak conscience. So he, he reveals exactly how to do that in verses 19 uh, through 22. And what I love, I love what he says in verse 23. Look at that, verse 23. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Love this, that I may share in its blessings. So he, he would yield his own rights, his own rights, and give up his Christian liberties in a way that would further God's work, further the gospel. That was his goal for living. And then the chapter ends with Paul uh, running the race, winning his race. And Paul's point is that as Christians, we, we can serve in such a way, act in such a way, and live in such a way that we can have an imperishable, eternal crown, a crown that will last forever. This now brings us to today's text. And the title of my message today is Lessons from the Past. Everyone say that, Lessons from the Past. Now, in today's text, 
uh, we're going to look at the exhortation that Paul gave to the Corinthian believers to learn the lessons of the Israelites from their failures during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after being led out of out of slavery in Egypt. So I want to give you four points. Point uh, give you four points from the text today. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Yes. Here we go. Point number one is this: the advantages. Write that down. The advantages. The advantages. Look at verse one with me. The advantages. Verse one. And Paul writes for, and that word for there is showing that Paul was con- actually continuing uh, uh, his discussion from chapter nine. So he says for. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers. So Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to learn from the Old Testament examples. He he wanted them to remember what happened to God's people in the wilderness. And so Paul begins by pointing, pointing to all the shared blessings, the shared privileges, the spiritual advantages enjoyed by Israel. Now notice the advantages. First of all, notice the advantage, the first ones that we see here is God's guidance, God's protection, and God's presence. Just write that down, God's guidance, God's protection, and God's presence. God's guidance, protection, and presence. And look at verse 1b with me. We'll continue in verse 1. That our forefathers are all, all of them, all of them, speaking to everyone here, all of them, those, um, those Israelites, all under the cloud. That our forefathers were all under the cloud. Uh, In Exodus, write this down, Exodus chapter 13, Exodus 13, verse 21, 13, Exodus 13, 21, it says this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them, got that, lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So they were all, all of them were supernaturally guided by the cloud. They were guided by the cloud. And they were also protected by the cloud from the hot desert sun. And so God was with them. He was with them. Guidance, protection, and presence. Got it? God guided them. God protected them. And God was with them. Also notice another advantage is God's deliverance. God's deliverance. Just write that down, God's deliverance. And we'll look at the the end of verse 1. And that they all passed through the sea. And that they all, there's that word again, all, right? All passed through the sea. Now, we know the story, right? God miraculously delivered, delivered excuse me, his people from Pharaoh. And they all passed through the sea, the Red Sea. And they were all liberated, liberated from the bondage of Egypt. All of them were delivered. God, all of them were delivered. Another advantage is this. God appointed leadership. God appointed leadership. Write that down. God appointed leadership. And I want you to look at verse 2 with me. God appointed leadership. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, we know that Christian baptism, what it is, it's identification with Christ, right? We know that. It's identification with Christ. We acknowledge our new identity as followers of Christ. He is our supernatural leader. So I want you to follow me here. What Paul had in mind as he wrote that is that the Israelites were baptized into Moses in the sense that they identified with him as God's appointed leader over them. Got it? Over them. God's appointed leader over them. Notice another advantage, God's provision. Write that down, God's provision. God's provision. Look at verse 3 with me. 
they all, there's that word again, all, they all ate the same spiritual food. So while the Israelites were wandering in the desert, how many years? 40 years, right? We know that. God provided them with food. He gave them quail and he gave them manna. Now that food was spiritual, not because, this is not because there was some uh, unusual quality about it, but because it was provided directly by God. Look at verse 4. And drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. I want to stop there. I want to stop there. While the Israelites were, were wandering in the wilderness, they ran out of water. And on two occasions, God provided water. Exodus 17.6. Write that down. Exodus 17.6. And Numbers 20, verse 11. Exodus chapter 17, verse 6. And Numbers chapter 20, verse 11. Now, now, just like the food, this water, listen now, was spiritual in the sense that it was provided directly by God. Now, I want you to look at the text again. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied, accompanied them. There was a rabbinic tradition or a Jewish legend that held that the rock actually followed the Israelites, that wherever they went, the rock was there. Well, appealing to that tradition, appealing to that legend, Paul corrects it. And this is what Paul says at the end of the verse. And that rock was who? Paul says was Christ. That Christ in, listen, in spiritual form was ever present with the Israelites. He was there to supply their need for water. Got it? And Paul is, is saying rather than a physical rock okay, that was following them, there was a spiritual rock, the foundation of Israel's hope, the Messiah. He was there. He was there. He was providing drink for them, refreshing them. Jesus said in John 7, John chapter 7, write that down. John chapter 7, verse 38. John 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water, love that, will flow from within them. Jesus also said in John 14, Verses 13 through 14, John 14, 13 through 14. Every, everyone who drinks uh, this water will never be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, Jesus was, Jesus was symbolized by that rock from which water miraculously flowed and satisfied the Israelites' thirst. Now, this rock wasn't a boulder. It was their Messiah. It was their Messiah. He, he, was, there providing, he was there providing for them, giving them nourishment in the desert. Now, I want you to follow me here, okay? The term rock there in the text, referring back to the Israelites, the rock there is not Petros, which is a boulder or stone. Rather, it's Petra. Petra, which is a massive cliff of solid rock. It means, it refers to a foundation stone. Say that, foundation stone. That foundation stone, who is it? It's Christ. It was Christ, right? Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and foundation of the New Testament church. 1 Peter chapter 2, write that down. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8 says that Jesus is the living stone Foundation stone, cornerstone, precious stone, even a, listen now, a stone of stumbling in that some received him, 
but others, rejecting him, stumbled and fell. Now, here's the lesson. Are you ready? Here's the lesson. God still provides great advantages. Write that down. God still provides great advantages. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Come on, if you're safe, say amen. If, if you said amen, listen now, he provides us with his guidance. He, he provides us with his guidance through his word, through his Holy Spirit. He guides us. He also protects us. He provides protection for us. He's there to protect us. Also, he provides us with his presence. He's with us every single day. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Also, he provides us with his deliverance. He's delivered us, he's delivered us from a lifestyle of sin. And we're saved now. And he also provides us with, listen, God-appointed leaders in the church, in the body of Christ. And he also provides us with his provision, right? He provides us uh, with food and drink. Remember, in, his, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, give us this day what our daily bread. So he always provides us with great advantages. And he did the same with the Israelites. Now, you would think, you would think that the Israelites would be grateful, they would be thankful, and totally obedient to God. Mm -mm. But they weren't. They rebelled, and they turned away from God, which brings us right into point number two. Point number two is the abuses. Write that down, the abuses. The abuses. Now, now, now even though God provided great advantages, privileges, freedoms to the Israelites, they were guilty of abusing those privileges, those freedoms, those advantages, which was displeasing to God. Now look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Did you get that? Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now I want you to stay with me here now. The Bible says 600,000 men left Egypt. Now, with women and children included, about two to three million Israelites came. Two to three million Israelites came out of Egypt. Now, as you read the story in Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy, Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy, you see this 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 same group, this same group of people rebelling against God time and time again. In Numbers thirteen and fourteen, Numbers chapter thirteen and chapter fourteen is the event where Moses, he sent out 12 spies into the promised land to survey the land, uh, what we know today as, as Israel. So he sent them out to survey the land, and 10 of the spies, okay, as, a, as, a, as, as a, all 12 came back, 10 of them, 10 of them reported, hey, we can't beat, we can't beat these guys. They're giants. Well, the other two spies, Joshua and Caleb, right, said, hey, man, you know, don't forget, we have God on our side. The twelve, the, the, excuse me, the ten spies. Their focus was on how big the giants were. The two spies, Joshua and Caleb, their focus was on how big their God was. But the people sided with the ten spies, and they chose to trust their own strength, their own instincts, rather than trust God. And they had all seen; they had all seen God's greatness, but they wouldn't really trust Him. And as a result, listen now: as a result of the lack of faith. As a result of the lack of faith, all the adults in that group, the original group in that group, who had all witnessed God's working in amazing, wonderful ways, 
died in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb, listen now, out of that group were the only two adults who entered the promised land. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Some translations say God was not well pleased with most of them. So question, is your life pleasing or well pleasing, should I say, to God? Think about it. Is your life right now, in your life, think about it. Is it well pleasing to God? Is he pleased with how you're living right now? Is he pleased with your walk as a believer? Or is he not pleased? And I hope and pray that as he looks at your life, as he looks at my life, that he would say, hey, I am well pleased with how you're living, how you're walking the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, write that down. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul writes, so we make it our goal to please him, our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Love that. Make it our goal to please him. Every single day of our lives, we should make it our goal that I'm going to please God. I'm going to please God. That should be our goal in our daily lives. Now let's look at how the Israelites were guilty of abusing their advantages, their freedoms, their privileges that displeased God. First of all, notice they were guilty of lust. Write that down. They were guilty of lust. Look at verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples. There's that word examples. Love that. Now these things, verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. The King James says it like this. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So Paul's speaking about the Numbers chapter 11 incident, Numbers chapter 11 incident. And if you read that, you'll notice that they were tired of manna. They were just tired of eating manna. And they began to crave and lust for meat. Well, God says, you want meat? Okay, you're, 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 you're craving for meat. You want meat. You're lusting for meat. You want meat. Okay, God says, I'll give you meat. I'll give you so much meat that's going to come out of your nostrils. Now, is there anything wrong with meat? No. No, in principle, they had the liberty to eat meat. Got it? They had the liberty to eat meat. The problem was that they lusted for meat. The problem was that it wasn't part of God's provision. God, God's provision was manna, okay, not meat. Manna, not meat. They were lusting for something other than what God had provided for them. Notice also they were guilty of idolatry. Write that down. They were guilty of idolatry, not just lust, but also of idolatry. Now I want you to look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. Do you get that? As some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Got that? Exodus 32. Exodus chapter 32. You might know the story. Moses had gone up to the mountain uh, to uh, receive the Ten Commandments, right? And uh, from God there, he received the Ten Commandments from God. And he was gone for several weeks. And the Israelites got what? Impatient. They got impatient. So they persuaded Aaron to make a golden calf. And so Aaron made the calf. 
And uh, then the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to indulge in idol worship. Now, perhaps you're saying to yourself, I don't have any statues that I bow down to. You know, I'm not wrapped up in idolatry. Well, before you settle with that, okay, listen, before you settle with that, an idol, let me say this, an idol is anything or anyone who replaces your devotion for God. It is anything or anyone that comes between you and you being fully devoted to God. It is anything or anyone that takes God's seat on the throne of your heart. An idol can be money. It can be your job. It could be your iPhone. That's a big one, right? It could be your iPhone. It could be social media. It could be even family. Family is a big-time idol in, in many people's lives, even Christians. It could be friends. It could be fun, even fun. An idol can be a relationship. How about this one? Politics. Politics. Sports. It could be your body. You're so into your body. It could be identity. It could be image. An idol can be success. You're so wrapped up in your success. It could be your car. It could be your home. It could be even, even be Netflix. I just said something, right? Netflix. Friends, we need to ask ourselves, this is now, the questions, do I love or treasure anything or anyone more than God? Ask ourselves the question, do I prioritize anything or anyone before God? Does anything bring me more pleasure than the things of God? Ask ourselves, do I place my identity in anything over my status as a child of God? Ask ourselves, do I look to anything or anyone to meet my needs instead of God? And do I seek fulfillment, comfort, or satisfaction from anything outside of God? 1 John 5.21, 1 John 5.21, John says to keep brothers, brothers, he's talking about Christians here, keep yourselves from idols. Lesson, here's a lesson. Here we go, you ready? Here's a lesson. Keep God first in my life. Got it? Keep God, keep them. Keep God first in my life. Friends, we need to constantly ask ourselves, daily ask ourselves whether we are, as Matthew 6.33 says, Matthew 6.33 says, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We need to ask ourselves, am I seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? I need to keep God first in my life. Also notice this. They were guilty of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Write that down. Guilty of lust, idolatry, also of sexual immorality. Look at verse 8 with me. Verse You're still with me? Say amen, by the way. Amen. Verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And this is what he says. And in one day, one day, 23,000 of them died. Well, here Paul cites a time when, obviously, as the text says, 23,000 people were killed by God for committing immorality. And Paul's referring to Numbers 25. Write that down. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9. Numbers 25, chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. And there, just before Israel crossed the Jordan, 
they fell into a trap set by Balaam the prophet. And he told the Moabites to send their young, beautiful girls into the camp and entice the men, the Israelites, the men, into the worship of the Moabite gods through sexual immorality. Notice, they were also guilty of putting God to the test. They were also guilty of putting God to the test. Look at verse 9 with me, verse 9. We should not test the Lord. Did you get that? We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Wow. In Numbers 21, write that down. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 6. Numbers 21, 4 through 6. The Israelites put God to the test when they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And you know what? God responded not so warmly. Listen to what it says. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Man, many Israelites died. Notice they were also guilty of complaining, of grumbling. Guilty of complaining, grumbling. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. Paul writes, and do not grumble. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Listen, they complained about food. They complained about food, Exodus 16, 2. Exodus 16, verse 2. They complained about the giants in the promised land. Numbers 14, 2. Numbers 14, 2. They complained about Moses and Aaron's authority. And behind the scenes, they grumbled and complained about them. And as a result, God executed 14,700 of them. And you'll find that in Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16, 41 through 49, number 16, 41 through 49. God, don't play. Lesson, here's a lesson. Are you ready? Stop complaining. That's the lesson. Stop complaining. Stop grumbling. Stop it. Some people, even Christians, just complain. Complain, 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 complain. That's all I do is complain. And friends, let's be honest. We have perfected the art of complaining. We even do it. We even complain when everything is going good, going great. Let me prove it, okay? Have you ever complained of not having enough room in your closet, listen now, in your closet because of having so many clothes? Have you ever complained of your freezer being too full to place something in it? Huh? Think about that. We even complain when everything is going great. I'm going to share the story with you. This, this woman's husband had been slipping in and out of a coma for several months, yet she had stayed by his bedside every single day. And one day, when he finally came out of it, he motioned for her to come nearer to him. As she sat by him, he whispered, eyes full of tears, You know what? You have been with me all through the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, 
you were by my side. When we lost the house, you stayed right here. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. You know what? What, dear? She gently asked, smiling as, smiling as her heart began to fill with warmth. Then he said, I think you're bad luck. My point is this. Are you tempted to think that following Jesus is bad luck? Huh? Friends, listen. Following Jesus is the best thing that has ever happened to you, ever happened to me. So we need to stop complaining. Stop grumbling. We have life, eternal life, abundant life. We're changed and we have the living Christ living within inside of us. We as Christians should be the most contended people on the face of the earth. There should be no room for complaining. Get this, complaining dishonors God. Contentment glorifies Him. Contentment glorifies Him. As I said, we, must, we should be the most contented people on the face of the earth. The advantages, the abuse, abuses. Number three is... The admonition. The admonition. Write that down. The admonition. And what Paul does here, Paul uses the past, speaking of the Old Testament, to instruct and warn the New Testament believers. Look at verse 11. These things happened. Got that? These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings. There it is, warnings. The admonition warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And I want, to, I want to stop there, and I want to say this. There is a teaching that's going on, going around today, that says that the Old Testament is not for the Christian today. That the Old Testament was written to the Jews who lived before Christ, and that it has nothing of practical value for the Christian in the 21st century. Not true. Not true. Okay, not true. Don't believe that. Okay, 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes and says that all of the scriptures are what? Inspired by God. They're God-breathed. And all the scriptures are profitable to all of us, right, in the areas of doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, and how to be righteous. Listen, friends, don't, don't fall into the trap of thinking that there's no value in the Old Testament. In fact, Paul bases his theology on the foundation of the Old Testament. And this is why we study the Old Testament here at Cry Out. It has value, value, right? Practical value for our lives. Let's move on, verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Here's a warning. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. This is the major lesson that Paul wants the Corinthian believers, wants us, all believers, to learn from what he has just said about the failure of the Israelites despite their great advantages, their great blessings, privileges, and liberties that have been given to them. These lessons from Israel's history are to make us learn, listen, make us learn, and to take inventory of our personal lives and not sit back and think what a bunch of idiots they were. Listen, just as Paul tells the Corinthians here, we today need to be very, very careful of ever feeling that we would not or could not ever fall into unbelief and rebellion as the Israelites did. Paul's warning here, listen now, get this, Paul's 
warning here is about overconfidence, about falling in the area of our strengths. And you see, friends, there's a sense in which for everyone that our greatest strengths can also be our greatest weaknesses. And that it's easy, therefore, easy, therefore, to fall in the area where we are strong for we're trusting in our own strength. Someone said this, the very area where we think that we are strongest and least likely to fall is probably the area that we are most likely to fall. True. Lesson, here's a lesson. Are you ready? Here's a lesson. Never let our guard down. Never let our guard down. Got it? If you're safe, say amen. Come on, if you're safe, say amen. Listen, no matter how strong we think we are, no matter how many, how many sins we have overcome in the past, we should never, never, never let our guard down. We should never assume, listen now, never assume that we are beyond temptation. Listen, friends, temptation, say that, temptation Okay, temptations, excuse me, temptations, temptations have led many people, many people who were greater, more mature, and more spiritual than ourselves down a path which trash their Christian walk and testimony. Got it? Never let your guard down. Got to always have it up. Got it? The advantages, the abuses, the admonition, the warning. Number four is the application. Write that down, the application. I love this, the application. And we can be sure that, listen, no temptation comes to us without the provision of God of an escape. Love that. In other words, there's a way to escape temptation. But listen, but to escape temptation, the believer... Those of us believer must know three great truths. Got it? Three great truths. And I want you to follow me here because they're in, the, they're in the last verse. I mean, not last verse. It was verse 13 of this chapter. Those three great truths are right there. The first great truth is this, and write it down, is the commonality, the commonality of temptation, the commonality of temptation. So look at verse 13a, the first part of verse 13, the commonality of temptation. Paul writes, no temptation has seized or overtaken you except what is common, there to say common, to man. All temptation, not some, all, Paul writes, temptation is common to man. This is, this is a great promise, right? This is a great promise. No temptation, what Paul's saying, no temptation is unique. There's no new temptation under the sun. No temptation is beyond man's capacity to handle. Listen, friends, every single temptation that attacks the believer is common to all men, all people. Now, you may be thinking to yourself that, you know, you're the only person on the face of the earth that has ever gone through what you're going through, but you're wrong. If that's what you're thinking, you're wrong. Now, that doesn't mean your difficulty, your difficulty, excuse me, is any less difficult, but it does mean this now that you're not alone. You're not alone. And you know what I love? I love the fact that there's a, a sense in which Jesus, say Jesus, Jesus can relate, can, can re, that, that in which Jesus can relate to what we're going through more than anyone 
anyone else, any other person. Write this down. He was four. He was chapter four. He was chapter four, verse 15. He was 415. I love this, by the way. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all... I'm going to read it again. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. But was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. I love that. Okay. So since all temptation is common to man, this means that some have already overcome it, right? Now true, now true, many have fallen, many have caved into the temptation, but some have demonstrated, listen now, okay, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God to overcome it. Overcome it. So the first truth is the commonality of temptation. The second truth is the faithfulness of God in temptation. The faithfulness of God in temptation. Write that down. The faithfulness of God in temptation. Look at verse 13b, the second part of that. And God is faithful. Gosh, I love that. God is faithful. Say that. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Again, say God is faithful. Come on, say God is faithful. Back in chapter 1 of this book, 1 Corinthians, okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes this. You might remember this. God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Say that faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful and he limits the temptation. Listen, friends, he doesn't allow a temptation to confront a believer that is too enticing, that's too appealing, that's too attractive, that's too forceful, that's too satisfying, that's too fulfilling, that's too pleasing, that's too self-exalting, that's too promising, that's too ego-boasting, that's too stimulating, and that's too arousing. Listen, God knows what you and I can bear and how much you and I can bear. I mean, he designed us. He created us, right? He made us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our stress limit. He knows exactly how much we can take, we can bear, and he has promised, a promise, not to exceed that limit. He limits every single temptation within our limits to overcome it. He is faithful. Say that, faithful. So guess what? This means we have no excuse to sin. I'll say it again. This means that you and I, we have no excuse to sin. We can't say, well, the devil made me do it. The devil can't make us sin. He can tempt us to sin, but he can't make us sin. When you and I, when we sin, it's because we decided to sin. It was our choice. And don't ever try to blame God because of your sin. He has made a way of escape. You can count on it. Now, it may not be the escape you're looking for, but there will be a way out of it. Which leads us to the third truth is the way of escape from temptation. The way of escape from temptation. Look at the verse 13c, the last part of verse 13. You're still with me? Say amen. Paul writes, but when you are tempted. I love this. Gosh, you ought to hold on to this verse, memorize it. 
He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I got to read that again so you get it. But when you are tempted, not if you are tempted, but when you are tempted, it's going to happen. He will also provide a way out, say way out, so that you can stand up under it. He always, say always, always makes an escape route. Got it? Always does. A way out of temptation. He, he always gives us strength. The strength to walk away. The strength to flee from the temptation. And you know the example, right? We always bring him up because it's a, it's a good example. I mean, Joseph. Joseph in Genesis 39, 12. Genesis 39, 12. You know the story, right? Potiphar's wife had the hots for him. And she tried to seduce him. And she would try to take him to bed. And Joseph, you know, he didn't sit there and he wasn't flattered to say, oh, that's nice. No, he wasn't there trying to entertain that temptation. No. The Word of God says that Joseph ran. He ran like the wind. He ran so fast that he left his cloak there. He found a way out. Got it? He saw a way out. He found a way out. And he ran out. He ran out. And by the way, let me say this. Whenever you flee temptation, never leave a forwarding address. Got it? Just run. Run, flee. Now listen. In every temptation, I want you to get this. In every single temptation you have fallen to in the past, there was an escape route. There was. There was a way out. You just didn't use it. You didn't use it. You weren't looking for it, but it was there. So here's a lesson. What's the lesson? Here's a lesson. Use the exit. <laughs> Write that down. Use the exit. Use the exit. God will always, listen, in the midst of your, listen, being tempted is not a sin. Falling into temptation is a sin. But in times where you're tempted, God will always make a way out for you. Got it? But you got, listen, you got to use it. You got to use the exit. Got it? Hey, when there's, when someone's in a burning building, you need to find the fire escape. Got it? He always makes a way out for you. You got to use it. Use the exit. I want to close with this. There was once a man on a diet, on a diet who prayed, God, if you don't want me to go get donuts, then let there not be any parking spots in front of the donut shop. Well, after his 20th time, after his 20th time around the block, there was a parking spot right in front of the door. Listen, sometimes, and get this, the way out means you stop circling around the block looking for a parking spot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed 
to have in our hands and to have at our disposal the Old Testament, the New Testament, your word, the blessing of learning lessons from the past. And Lord, I pray that these lessons from Israel's past, from Israel's history, would would make us, Lord, learn and cause us to take inventory of, of our personal lives, of our walk with you, that we would live a life well-pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Say amen. Well, listen, friends, before I let you go, perhaps there's someone who is listening online right now and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and you're listening and you're feeling a tug at your heart that's the Holy Spirit calling you unto the Lord. And so if that's you and you're feeling that tug and you're saying, you know what, Pastor, I just, I, 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 need, I need a change in my life. I, I, need, I need someone stronger and wiser and bigger than myself. Well, that's Jesus Christ. And he wants to save you and change you. And if that's you where you're sensing that, hey, I, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I, I want you to, to bow your, your head and close your eyes and I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Would you do that? Let's, let's do that, okay? Jesus, I invite you to come into my life right now, Lord, to save me, to cleanse me, and to change me. And Lord, I confess with my mouth that, that, that you are Lord, and I believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I'm saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, Purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. From this day forth, I will serve you faithfully until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you said that prayer, we would love to hear from you. In fact, you can email us at contact at cryout.org. That's contact at cryout, that's two Y's, C-R-Y-Y, cryout.org. Well, I hope you enjoyed the message. I'm loving this series. It's been wonderful. It's caused me to grow more in the Lord and my walk with Him. Hopefully it's done the same uh, to you as well. So God bless you, love you, and I'll see you next week.